I'm Prime Minister Boris Johnson and you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple with Hannah Young, Consul General. Rachel Lloyd is a British anti-trafficking advocate, author and the founder of Girls Educational and Mentoring Services. She is known for her work on the issue of commercial sexual exploitation and domestic trafficking and has been a leader in helping shift the perception of trafficked girls from criminals to victims and now to survivors and leaders. Rachel has worked at all levels of society, including with the US government on its own domestic legislation and with the United Nations on international calls to action. Her leadership has been recognized across the board, including being named one of the 100 women who shaped New York by the New York Daily News, receiving the Reebok International Human Rights Award and also the Social Entrepreneurship Award from the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Rachel was also appointed a companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George in the 2020 New Year Honours for services supporting victims and survivors of commercial sexual exploitation and trafficking, something the British consulate here was proud to support. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to talk to British people. <laughs> Um, well, as you know, this podcast is all about exploring the stories and journeys of Brits living in New York. Um, and your story, I have to say, is incredibly moving, um, harrowing in part, but also with an incredibly positive twist through your work um, with GEMS. And we'd just love to kick off by hearing more about your story and how you came to be here in New York. Um, so I've been here since... 1997 um I left England I, it's weird because I've been out of England longer than I lived there but it doesn't feel like it because I still feel very English um so I left England when I was 17 uh just turned 17 and moved to Germany um on a whim essentially with a couple of girls that I didn't really know uh with like a hundred bucks and uh no return ticket um, because I was 17 and had no sense. Um, and because, right, I'd grown up in a really uh, abusive environment with um, alcoholic parents and uh, just a lot of really intense stuff and thought that this would be like a kind of escape and a new start. And um, I was trying to get away from an abusive guy and all of that. And so I ended up getting into within a couple of weeks of being in Germany and not speaking the language and not having any money and not having a way to get back. Um, I ended up uh, working in a strip club um, initially as a hostess. And but obviously that requires more than, you know, carrying drinks. Um, and so ended up in the commercial sex industry, ended up meeting a guy, an American guy, actually, who ended up becoming my pimp. Um, and so spent a couple of years in the sex industry and, uh, right. What, what I now understand and didn't know at the time, like being trafficked, um, and then managed to get out with the help of a church, an American church, uh, and became a nanny for a couple of years, which was a huge change. Um, but really kind of needed. And so then I ended up coming to New York initially, um, on a missionary visa, which most people don't even know exists, 
uh, on a religious visa and working for an organization that worked with adult women coming out of the sex industry. Um, and so, yeah, I came here in 97, August 97 and worked for them for like a year and started going into like the prisons and the streets and just doing outreach. But I mean, I was 22 when I got here. And so working with the women, it became quite clear that like my calling was really with the girls and younger women. Um, and so a year in, I started GEMS, uh, September 98 um, on my kitchen table. And here we are now, wow. many, many, many years later. <laughs> And right. tell us about GEMS and what you're trying to do through that work and, and also how your own experience as a survivor of sexual exploitation has helped you shape your organisation. So, so, I mean, GEMS was really founded to serve uh, and, and trafficking. I want to give a little backstory mm. because trafficking wasn't, like a, a a word when I started um it was really like and and even in the U.S. particularly like commercial sexual exploitation wasn't a phrase either it was something that was beginning to be recognized internationally and by the U.N. and stuff so right while the majority of our girls and young women and now we we actually serve up to 29 since the last year um have been trafficked uh we serve anyone who's experienced kind of commercial sexual exploitation. And so really anyone who's been in the commercial sex industry. Um, and so when I first came to New York and I was going up to Rikers Island prison and meeting 13 year olds who had been told to say they were 18 and or 16 and were in an adult correctional facility or going out on the streets. I mean, A, I noticed how young people were. B, I noticed that the overwhelming majority of girls were black and Latina girls. Um, and that the racial disparity was incredibly clear. Um, and that girls were being treated as criminals, as, you know, worthless. Um, and so I have a friend who said that uh, people create the organizations like founders and executive directors who create organizations create the things that like they need to heal in themselves and so when I started gems and the idea of gems is like right a, a precious stone or something that like maybe to an untrained eye doesn't look like it's valuable or worthwhile because it's like got dirt on it or it but like to you know somebody who understands what they're looking for like with some polishing and honing and care and attention right like this beautiful gem can kind of appear and so when I was meeting these girls and young women they were amazing they were funny and they were smart and they were intelligent and they were creative and they wrote great poems and sent me stuff and pictures and 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 like right I was able to see through them like what I think at that point I couldn't really see in myself um, mm. and the the compassion and empathy that I had for them which I don't think I, I I know I didn't really have for myself and so you know this idea of like developing uh, leadership and ensuring that survivors voices were mm. prominent at the table um, 
with programs, with policies, with right, anything that affects us, we should be part of. I think being a survivor really uh, helped, in, obviously, in connecting with the girls and, and for the girls I was meeting. I mean, I hadn't met anybody who had made it out of the sex industry successfully at that point. And then when I got to, to the States and, you know, there were a couple of women around the country who'd founded organizations. Um, and so that was really powerful for me to like connect to people who had made it out and maybe we're still struggling with some things, but like, right, we're, we're helping other people and going to school or whatever. Uh, and so I think for, for the girls that I was meeting, a, I was like a super curiosity, right? Because I had this very, very British accent. Um, so, and it was 1997. So they used to say, I was this, they'd be like, come listen to the Spice Girl. Um, so yeah, sporty Spice, man, God. Um, so I was like this weird person who had like a weird accent, but had the same experience as them. Um, and so that was incredibly powerful and is, is still something that is important um, and is a way to connect with uh, the girls mm. and young women that we serve. Mm. But, but I think the, the other part was like this desire to, to, to kind of be able to like really change stuff um, mm -hmm. and, and it not just be about like individual change, but about systemic and societal change. And so believing that like both I, I should be at the table, um, and that the girls should be at the table and the young women should be at the table. Like that was kind of right. What propelled me, um, mm -hmm. does that, does that answer the question? Yeah, no, it does. And I'd really like to come on to talking to you about your thoughts on what more we can do as government and as societies. But I suppose just just taking it a step back, I suppose there there be people, myself included, who will listen to your incredible story and and not not quite be able to relate. And I just wonder whether there's, you know, can you can you just explain maybe a little bit about you know as a victim coming out of that environment and you know as you say you focus a lot on supporting victims you know what what are what are the needs what are the what kind of support do people who come out of this world which sounds so horrible and so um you know must feel so trapped you know what what does that feel like and and what do people need at that point when they do make it out so so here's the thing right like you don't you feel trapped but i mean i think this is why I think like commercial sexual exploitation, like we always talk about commercial sexual exploitation and trafficking um, mm -hmm. to give kind of like that larger umbrella because you can feel trapped in the sex industry because you're broke, not because you're like in a basement with mm -hmm. a trafficker. Do you know what I mean? And so I think particularly in the States in the last few years, trafficking has taken on this very like lifetime movie QAnon, right? Like this whole kind of like duct tape over the mouth and, you know, chains and all of that, um, which isn't the experience for the vast majority of folks. Um, overwhelmingly, if you have a pimp, a trafficker, it's somebody that you know, that you 
thought you were in a relationship with or you still think you're in a relationship with um and that there i mean there's a relationship there it's just not a healthy one um that your physical right like the physical chains are rarely there um but it's the emotional and psychological kind of trauma that keeps you stuck the fact that you might feel like you've got nowhere else to go i mean over 80 percent of the girls that we serve have been in either the child welfare system or the juvenile justice system and so um you know growing up in child welfare uh right that means that you've already experienced family trauma um right we know from studies of both uh of adult women um and trans folks and men anyone who's been in the sex industry we know both with children and adults that anywhere from 70 to 90 percent have experienced sexual abuse as a child so that kind of thing has already, you've already experienced trauma that's already shaped uh, how you react to situations. It's already shaped how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see relationships. Um, and so if you get in, getting caught up, you may have already felt trapped in your group home where you were or in your parents' home where your stepfather was abusing you. And so getting running away with a pimp or you know getting into the life uh might initially feel like an escape um and it might feel better than what you were running from at least in the beginning uh mm. and and right we have to like teach girls that that's not indicative of the fact that like your pimp is such a great guy that this feels better than living at home it's indicative of how terrible uh you were treated by adults in your house mm. um that like this feels like a step up um so i i think helping people understand like the trauma that folks have even before they enter um the life and before they're kind of in these situations uh is critical to understanding like right the long-term kind of ramifications because it's not just about healing from that period that you were you know under the control of a pimp or in the sex industry or whatever it's about healing from right mm. like decades or years of like trauma and abuse mm. um and so when you get out i mean you know you it can feel initially you know you can feel very euphoric and elated um but that can kind of crash very quickly and so you know a lot of a lot of like psas and campaigns and all that tends to be focused on you know freedom and like for trafficking victims but like what does freedom look like if when you get out, you're still homeless or like you weren't homeless actually when you were with him. So now you're homeless, you're broke. You don't have an education. You don't have any skills. Uh, your parents or your family were your primary abusers in the first place. So you can't go back there. People in your community know what you did. And so there's all this stigma. Um, you have maybe a criminal record at this point. I mean, right? Like how much, much freedom is really there and so you know I, I think right not just thinking about kind of the short term like and, and this is why we never use terms like freedom or rescue because mm. um, those are very short term kind of in a little sensationalistic but like really thinking about like empowerment and stability and healing things that take time, like a long time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so while we might initially have to address like basic needs, like housing and food and all of that stuff, uh, right, the longer term stuff in terms of like healing from the trauma of your childhood, from the trauma of being bought and sold for months, years, however long, uh, right, beginning to feel like you can be in society, um, beginning to feel like that stigma that people have put on you, you don't have to carry around for the rest of your life, being able to gain educational, um, you know, gain an education, gain employment skills, right, begin to feel like you have a purpose, uh, and to develop legitimate, like economic stability, because I mean, right, that will send you back. There are lots of folks who have, you know, quote unquote, escaped, we don't use that word really either, um, from, you know, a trafficker, or a sex industry or whatever, who when they are struggling with legitimate poverty, find themselves, you know, back in the sex industry again, maybe they don't have a pimp this time. Um, but it feels like, well, I've already done that. So I've already crossed that line. And I don't know how else mm. to make money. So you know, when we, when we work with girls, it's about long-term solutions as opposed to, and, and recognizing those solutions that, you know, sometimes take a lot mm. um, because systems, it's not about like, you know, oh, girls don't want to grow or whatever. Systems are not set up for that, um, right? If you live in New York, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Uh, if you are 21 and just got out of life and you got a baby and no education and like, what do you do next? How do you live? How do you support yourself? How do you, right, get to work if you have a job? I mean, right, mm. living in poverty makes, you know, a huge difference to folks. Um, and so we're really committed to kind of the longer term, like empowerment and and economic stability of the young women that we work with it's interesting that you talk about the 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 use of words and you know i can see how some of those words like rescue are so freedom are so loaded aren't they and they can be Mm -hmm. one one person and another thing to another and you're right it it sounds like it's a real whole of society effort and i know that you've been working with US government and others over the years and I'm really interested in your views on the journey that government has undertaken um you mentioned previously about the fact that trafficking you know wasn't a commonly used term and just interested in your views on that that glide path and what more governments can do to you know to support people like yourself and and crucially the women that you're supporting so, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because we need we need legislation. Um, and over the last 20 years, and particularly the last like five, 10 years, there's been, right, a lot of legislation. But legislation alone doesn't do it. Um, I mean, A, you need funding to support kind of services and programs um, because, right, this work is resource heavy. I mean, you can do a rescue reasonably cheaply. Uh, supporting somebody going back to school, finding them housing, um, making sure that they have healthcare, making sure that they have access to therapy and, uh, right, that they can take training programs to develop skills. Like, that's resources. 
Um, and so you need kind of programs and you need uh, governments and, you know, both at the federal and, and state and local levels to understand that, um, you know, funding a safe house that like serves girls for six months and then, you know, sends them back out, like that's probably not gonna like achieve the results you want. Um, but you also need kind of like the hearts and minds too, right? Like legislation alone doesn't cut it. You can't legislate like kind of social change um, in terms of people's like brains uh and and how they feel about stuff but you you can fund um you know public awareness stuff and you can shift people's perceptions we were on an okay track and in fact i would say we were on a pretty good track uh a few years ago because for a long time uh it was international trafficking that had the focus and the girls and women that we served were just seen as what we call the P word at GEMS, um, but right, just seen as prostitutes uh, and not seen as victims or individuals who were being exploited or individuals who deserve services. Um, and so making sure that like, you can kind of create that shift in people's uh, perceptions and, and have the resources and uh, like have that kind of long-term commitment was some, that was something that was happening and then obviously we had a blip, um, you know, over the last few years with a different administration. And that administration, you know, was was really focused on kind of the rescue stuff, but not, but was at simultaneously cutting services, was cutting the things that make people less vulnerable in the first place. Um, Right. And when you increase racism, when you increase sexism, when you increase, right, like increasing those things increases the vulnerability, particularly of, of young people. Um, and so you can keep rescuing people and doing these high profile like FBI national stings or whatever. Um, but all you're doing with all your other policies is creating uh, more and more individuals who end up in the sex industry. And that's what we've seen. So you know, my hope is over the next few years, we'll kind of get back on track um, in terms of how we look uh, as a society and as a, from a government perspective for this issue. But I think it's very easy for governments to want a very quick answer fix. I had a, a politician last, uh, two years ago, I guess now, um, who we were at a meeting and he said, he, we were at a meeting with one of his staffers. He walked in, he said, okay, you've got two minutes to tell me why, uh, you know, pro-sex work or isn't the answer, like legalization isn't the answer. And I was like, I have two minutes. And he was like, you've just wasted 20 seconds in asking that. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, A, bit of a jerk. Um, <laughs> he like, you, that's not a two minute answer, right? Mm -hmm. Even, I mean, obviously not for me, uh but like for anyone even the most concise person um because this is a complex issue and governments don't tend to like things that don't have like one answer do you know what i mean and so mm -hmm. right there isn't one piece of legislation that addresses this there isn't one like big anti-trafficking bill that makes this better there's there's lots and lots and lots of things 
some that people don't think have any connection to trafficking, like affordable childcare. Do you know what I mean? That that really make a difference in addressing this issue. Yeah, I can completely see that it's it's such a multifaceted solution. And as you say, you need a multitude of government departments and agencies and wider civil society to play their part. Um, I mean, I'm the mother of a young girl and, um, you know, the thought of vulnerable children being exploited is, is horrific. Um, what, what advice would you have to parents, to teachers, to educators on how to, you know, how to, how to raise girls who, you know, can, um, you know, can feel empowered to say no or can spot those moments when they might be sliding into, um, you know, a world that isn't as wholesome for them as they might think. You know, for, for parents, obviously that's, you know, a, there's many, many things to be frightened of as a parent. Um, and so I think, you know, the way that this has been portrayed often in the media can make people feel like, you know, their child is going to be like just snatched at any point. Um, the reality is, is like I said, the majority of folks who end up in the sex industry and particularly who end up at, at, there as children are coming from homes and situations where there is already trauma and abuse. Um, mm -hmm. If you feel valued and supported, if you have not had your boundaries violated uh, and completely violated by sexual abuse, if you haven't grown up with domestic violence and substance abuse and right, like the likelihood that you end up in the commercial sex industry starts to decrease. I think what we are seeing though now is, uh, or end up being trafficked rather, but like what we are seeing now is an increase of girls who are entering and, and young women who are entering the sex industry without being trafficked, who don't have all of those histories, but because the sex industry is being glamorized and sex work is being glorified in a way that normalizes it. Um, and there's a very fine line between reducing stigma and like normalizing it. And so, right, if you're 18 and you think the way to pay for college is to be a sugar baby or to work in a strip club or, right, because you've seen movies and Instagram accounts and, and, and right, there looks to be a level of glamour. Um, so I, I think, you know, you have to start talking to your kids about that stuff right as early as possible and kind of interrogating the stuff that they're seeing and teaching young people critical thinking skills i mean i would say right if you're raising boys boys can be buyers um mm. right the likelihood that a son will be invited to go to a strip club or right have a you know dancer come to a party or whatever is pretty high um and so, right, what are you teaching boys about, it's not just, right, I mean, this, with sexual assault, we're not just teaching girls how, like, not to get sexually assaulted, we need to teach boys and young men, right, like, where is that young person, that girl who's dancing on your lap, like, why is she there? Why does she financially need to be there? Like, what is the power imbalance in this? And I think, you know, over the last few years, right, we've been talking a lot about like Me Too and the, the whole kind of power imbalance in in workplace particularly and that 
right? The the woman who allows quote unquote her her boss to put his hand on her knee in meetings isn't doing it because she's like, yay, this is awesome, but because she's scared of saying something, she doesn't want to lose her job because if she loses her job, she can't pay for her housing and for her kid and all of that. I think we we need to really be applying that same analysis to the sex industry and recognizing that like folks aren't in the sex industry overwhelmingly because this is like the most exciting, cool thing they could be doing. It's because of desperation. It's because of poverty. It's because of lack of options. Um, and so I think as I, I've seen this with boys and, and young men and even a, a, a grown adult men um, who begin to have epiphanies later in life, uh, that when you begin to see the women and girls as a humans, um, and then understand that like, right, you have the power in this situation and there's a really exploitive power dynamic going on. Like it be begins to be less attractive for, for, for men. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of walking into situations and being conscious of that power dynamic and conscious of vulnerability, I guess, as well. Um, yeah, I mean, right, we know from studies that, you know, a lot of men who buy women have a good sense that they've probably been abused have a good sense that they're probably not there because they just love it so much um and so right how do we how do we like help people shift that and then there's men who've never even like wanted to think about that so then they've like justified it and told themselves oh she's paying for college i'm helping her like dude you could you could help her a lot better if you advocated for like, you know, better college loans and uh, mm. right, better like financial options for um, mm. young people going to college. And right, like it, you shouldn't have to like, I mean, right, you shouldn't have to like work in a strip club or be a sugar baby in order to get an education. Like that's, there's something messed up with that. So right, your contribution shouldn't be to like, just pay her some money um, because a probably she's not in college because it's really hard to finish college when you're working in the strip club. Um, but to like advocate for better policies and uh, better systems around, right? I mean, America is one of the you know countries where college is often prohibitively expensive for young people. Mm. Um, thank you for that. Um, you've been recognised with an honour from um, the Queen for your work, um, which we yes. were thrilled to support. Um, what was that experience like? You know, it's so funny, I haven't really been able to talk about it to anyone because it happened like the week before I came back and literally like shut down the office. Um, and so, right, and then it was a pandemic. And so nobody really wanted to hear about like, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. Um, my mom came. We stayed up in London for a week in an Airbnb uh, and it was just really, um, I hadn't been home in close to 20 years um, because uh, something that a lot of people don't know if they don't work in with passports or visas or whatever is that when you enter this country, one of the questions is, have you been involved in like, I think, I think the question is phrased something like, have you been involved in like drugs and or uh, prostitution, right? And so if you, I, it, 
there's a there's a the the real version of the story is I wrote no when I first entered because I didn't think I had and then because I was like I was a dancer um and then got to the states and started working with girls and women and within a couple of weeks called the called the uh ice at that time and said um I think I messed up on my form like I think I lied but I didn't mean to and they were like what they they went and got a manager because they were like we've never had anyone do this before um and so they were like don't worry about it honey it's all right if I'd gone to work at like Macy's or in chemical engineering for the rest of my life it would have been fine but right I decided to do something that like put my past front and center which meant right if I was ever to fill out the visa again I need to write it differently so that meant that I couldn't leave the country for like nearly 15 years um so that was tough uh and felt um not entirely fair and right I mean somebody being in the sex industry shouldn't be classed in the same right like as selling drugs like um I that needs to come off the you know that shouldn't be a requirement to get into it because had I put yes on that form uh I would never have been allowed in this country and I would never have started jams so um there's lots of great people out there who should be uh afforded that opportunity so all that to say I hadn't been home in like 20 years basically and it was really emotional and I burst into tears in like um safe way uh just like seeing all the grocery products I was so excited um but like having my mom there and right her being able to see me get an honor and yeah it was it, it still kind of feels very surreal um because it happened and then a pandemic happened and you know uh I, I don't even have the pictures from it and Prince Charles said so it was Charles not the queen because of COVID um and he I don't remember everything he said because it was very nerve-wracking. Um, and uh, but he said very nice things, and he asked good questions, and and I I do remember him saying it must be really uh, like rewarding or exciting to see young women like you know grow grow or something. And it it was nice that like because a lot of people say oh this work must be so hard like it is. But it's incredibly, it is incredibly rewarding. It is incredibly joyful at times. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff about it and about working with young people that is just awesome. Um, that isn't just like crying every night because people are going through trauma, but like you're seeing people begin to make steps and heal from trauma and you're seeing people graduate from school. And so we had a nice little conversation about like our educational program and it was, it was really, it was really, uh, it comes right after knights and dames and stuff. It's kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, I was very excited. <laughs> uh, that's my little moment to talk about it. Thank you. Um, I feel, I feel very, very, very grateful, um, to, to, uh, the embassy and to the folks who nominated me. And I mean, my staff kept it a secret that they were like helping out with the process. So I had no idea it was happening to go back to places that I had gone. And when I was like 13, 14, I was going up to London and I was like modeling on my own, which you can imagine was not like a great, uh, or safe experience. And you know, just dealing with a lot of like 
trauma at home. And, and so to go back to some of those places and like revisit some of that stuff as an adult in a good place in my life, getting an honor from the queen was freaking just beautiful really beautiful I'm phenomenally grateful for it oh Rachel thank you so much for telling your story um thank you for helping us understand what we can do as a society to support women who've found themselves in this position and um you know your honor is richly deserved and we um we really look forward to seeing gems grow and your work continue so thank you very much for coming on brits in the big apple thank you for having me it was fun you're listening to brits in the big apple brought to you by the british consulate in new york if you'd like to hear more about the work of the british consulate please follow us on twitter or instagram at uk in new york thank you for listening